Welcome to the In Doubt Podcast, where we explore the challenging topics that young adults often face. Each week, we talk with guests who help answer questions of faith, life, and culture, connecting them to our daily experiences and God's Word. For more info on In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. Hey, this is Daniel Markin, and welcome to In Doubt. And on this episode, I'm joined by Ewan Gallagher. He's a physician in Toronto, also at the University of Toronto, and he works in end-of-life care. And what we're talking about today is medical-assisted suicide, medical end-of-life you know, care, the fact that in our country right now, you can, you can have euthanasia, where um, a person can elect on their deathbed to, to be killed uh, and we call it mercifully, you know, to end their suffering. And so this brings up a lot of controversy in our culture and as we think about this as Christians. And so uh, we wanted to do this episode, though, so that you could think critically about it and be able to think biblically about uh, what this means for us as believers. So I hope you find this episode helpful. Hey, welcome to In Doubt. This is Daniel Mark, and I'm joined today by Ewan Gallagher. Ewan, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm very well, thank you. Hey, listen, we got a really interesting and you know controversial topic that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, something that uh, you know, if many of our listeners have been listening to the news or paying attention uh, to our culture in Canada specifically uh, in the over the last number of years, we're, we're talking about assisted suicide, but there's a correct name for that. And so, this is something that we want to discuss because it's super painful for for many people. I, I think we don't have a good grasp on even what it is. And then, and then the implications of that. And so, you and if you would please just like you know explain who you are, what you do, and then begin to walk us through what is assisted suicide or made, as it's now being kind of called. Sure. Thank you, Daniel. So, I'm an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. I'm an intensive care doctor, and um, I'm also a research scientist. I study sort of uh, ways to improve life support and, and mechanical ventilation. So that's that's what I do as my day job. But in the ICU, I'm, I'm often involved in caring for patients at the end of life. And when, when MAID or medical aid in dying was legalized uh, several years ago, it really became something that those of us who look after patients at or near the end of life had to come to grips with in terms of what we thought about it, in terms of the ethics. And then for me in particular as a Christian, how, uh, you know, what my, my, my uh, spiritual and religious uh, moral obligations were with respect to this kind of sea change in medical ethics. So medical aid in dying has a number of different labels. It's sometimes called physician-assisted death. Uh, traditionally, it was called assisted suicide or euthanasia. So Assisted suicide was the term used for when the patient ingests a lethal prescription themselves, and then euthanasia was the term used to describe uh, the act of the doctor or nurse administering the lethal medication by ejection. But just for ease of, of language throughout the interview, I'll just discuss it as euthanasia, which basically I think encapsulates the notion that this is an act where you're deliberately and intentionally causing the patient's death. And that's really what makes this different uh, from anything else we do in medicine where we otherwise would never intentionally aim to cause the patient's death. Right, because I feel like the irony here is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but as a doctor, you took an oath 
to try and care for people and, and, and try and keep them alive. And like, that, that's, that's your goal here. And all of a sudden this comes along, it's passed through legislation, now it's approved. And this is seen as a solution, which is going completely against your oath. And I imagine that's been a little bit of a conflict of interest or, you know, how has that been with some of your colleagues? How do you guys wrestle with that? For one thing, it reflects a, a gradual progressive evolution in the basic understanding of what medicine is and what it, what it's for. Uh, traditionally, it was seen as something that was aimed at preserving and promoting the bodily health of the patient. And increasingly, it's seen as a means of promoting personal autonomy and personal um, well-being. So something uh, distinct from and, and different from you know, the idea of bodily health per se. What was so strange about it when it was first being legalized was that for those of us who objected to, to being involved at all, who, who felt that it was unethical, we suddenly found ourselves in the position of, of being almost seen as lacking in compassion or being the bad doctor, so to speak, the doctor who doesn't care about the patient. So whereas traditionally an unwillingness to cause a patient's death was seen as a virtue, now in the popular imagination, it becomes a vice. So that was, it was just a complete 180 degree turn in the way that our kind of traditional medical ethics work. So it was upsetting and, and challenging to navigate and to discuss with colleagues and with patients and so on. So it's been a, a challenging season for many physicians across the country. No kidding. Was it like a majority shift or were you in the minority of this? Or were there like a lot of, you know, most doctors were maybe feeling that way, but then were kind of being quiet about it because obviously your license depends on that. Yeah. So I, I would say that the majority support the legalization of, of euthanasia. And what's interesting is that even though many are supportive of it, very, very few are actually willing to do it. It's actually difficult uh, to find enough doctors to meet the level of demand for euthanasia across the country. That's an ongoing challenge. And one of the reasons why, why referral became mandatory was that that was the way in which the regulators wanted to make sure that patients could get access. And so um, the rules are that you, that you have to refer. You don't have to actually perform euthanasia, but you do have to refer for it, at least in Ontario and, and a couple of other provinces. Those are the rules. But, uh, but you'll find that although most doctors are supportive of the idea, they're completely unwilling to do it themselves, even though it's, you know, the simplest thing possible. Mm -hmm. And the basis for this, and you kind of just touch on that, but I've, I've heard it also called mercy killing, right? And, and the, the idea is, well, it's more merciful for them to, to, to be killed like this or to choose to die now than it is for them to actually suffer and, and die. And so um, how did we arrive there, you know, in, in your view, how did we arrive there as a society where we actually began to see that as merciful? Because I think you could make the case that you are, you're showing mercy in what you're doing in actually caring for someone in, the, in their end of life. Like we have palliative care where literally we have doctors and nurses committed to making people's last days as comfortable, as painless as possible as they spend that time with their families, you know, as they reflect on their life and they, and they find what comes most important with them. You know, here are a lot of people who in those last days actually might return back to the faith they once had. And so in your estimation, how did this creep in to our society? Yeah, that's a really great question. And it's a huge topic. Uh, I would say very briefly that 
it reflects a big shift in in our society's values towards a generally secular way of seeing the world. So in a, in a secular way of seeing the world, you know, there's, there's no God, or at least God's not particularly relevant. We decide for ourselves uh, what's right and wrong. And we make decisions based on our experience of this present reality. And nothing beyond it sort of counts into the decision-making. So uh, for one thing, the rightness or wrongness of, of killing someone or of ending someone's life depends on the person's preference for life. If they, if they want to be uh, dead and if they decide that they're better off dead, well, that becomes true for them and then you're expected to act accordingly. So it's a big shift in the way that we understand how you decide what's right and wrong, what's true and false. One of the really interesting things to me is the way in which this act of euthanasia completely takes for granted that you have some idea of what it's like to be dead. It's actually a profoundly faith-based act because it assumes that you know uh, that you're better off dead than alive, and that assumes that you know what it's like to be dead. So it reflects a sea change in the sort of general assumptions that we're willing to make about reality and about how we decide what's right and wrong. It really reflects kind of moral relativism or the idea that, that people can all decide for themselves what's right and wrong. And it reflects secularism and this idea that you don't need to consider that there, you know, is anything beyond this life. Mm-hmm. I've heard you and you, you wrote this in your article for Gospel Coalition, but you use the terms intrinsic value and extrinsic value. Could you, could you discuss those a little bit? Because I think that's an important piece of this as you even consider maybe the Imago Dei and what we see in Genesis. Yeah, so it comes back to this, this fundamental question of what makes it wrong to cause somebody's death. And that in turn uh, raises the question, well, what makes them matter or be significant in the first place? So when we're talking about human value and what makes people matter, we can talk about two kinds of value. There is intrinsic value and there's extrinsic value. And extrinsic value is value that comes from your usefulness or your uh, what you can do, what, what you bring to the table, so to speak. So whereas intrinsic value comes from just from who you are, it's, it's value that you have just by virtue of what and who you are. Um, and one way to think about it is that things that have extrinsic value are generally things that we're willing to buy and sell. Whereas things that have intrinsic value are things that are, are priceless. And, you know, an analogy that I like to point to, although it's, I don't think it's a perfect analogy, is uh, something like the Mona Lisa, uh, which is sort of priceless. And, you know, you almost couldn't put a price tag on, on buying the Mona Lisa from the Louvre because it's just such a precious artifact. It, has, it almost has intrinsic value. Well, even more extreme value than that are the kinds of value that people have understanding this kind of value is important because to have extrinsic value means that your value is conditional whereas to have intrinsic value means that your value is unconditional so if we say that people have absolute rights and uh that they absolutely ought to be treated with respect in certain ways well that relies on a notion that that you have intrinsic value and i think ultimately everyone wants to believe that humans have intrinsic value the the problem is is that it's very difficult to understand where that kind of value, that sort of value by virtue of who you are could come from. And this is the beauty and power of of the Christian faith is that it helps us to make sense out of and understand why 
people matter so much because they're made in the image of God. This is something I think we know deeply intuitively. And once we recognize that people have intrinsic value and that therefore it's absolutely good that they exist, we start to realize, wow, we really shouldn't be deliberately ending people's existence because we're destroying something that's priceless. Yeah. And on that too, it's so interesting that uh, in our culture too, we've shifted like with the extrinsic value, um, that, that's all that matters. Yet, uh, in matters of like animals and caring for, you know, like I walk around downtown here in Vancouver and you'll always see people showing the video of animals being killed, slaughtered, you know, like the um, pigs or, or meat, you know, like the chicken industry, whatever, right? They'll talk about the fact that these animals are being slaughtered and they have intrinsic value. And yet our, our world turns around and says that humans are based on extrinsic value, based on what you can do. But all of a sudden these animals, not made in the image of God, right? Like, and not that we shouldn't care for nature. That's, that's definitely in, in the Bible too. We're to have dominion over the garden, to care for it. You know, that's, that's something we see. But our, our world is in many places shifting away and saying that these animals have more value than humans, which when you begin to hear that, I mean, that's when I know an idea is not from the kingdom of God. Right, but I'm like, that's an idea of the enemy. That's an idea of Satan. As soon as it like flips upside down and like makes complete and utter nonsense, that's when I'm like, this is this is not something that is of God. It's crazy that our world is in this place, and now here we have doctors like you being pressured into this very thing. Yeah, you know, one of the interesting arguments that was made in support of of euthanasia was was animal euthanasia. People said, oh, if my dog was suffering this way, I wouldn't, I wouldn't force them to go through it. I would go to the vet and have them put down. So why is it, if people matter at least as much or more than animals, then why, uh, why are we unwilling to, to relieve their suffering by causing their death? And so you could see a, a way, the way in which that argument relies on the idea that humans aren't really fundamentally different in the nature of their value from animals, that there's there's no real difference. And if we treat animals with respect in a certain way, we have to treat humans with respect in the same way. And I think I think one of the ways in which our world is deeply broken is, is the way in which we are so easily forget just how much we matter. And over the last few years, as I've been reflecting on these things and trying to find language to describe the true depth of human value, and I think this idea of intrinsic value valued by virtue of who you are becomes so powerful because it helps us to understand why even though people become disabled they still matter so deeply and even if people are suffering chronically and limited in certain ways they still matter so deeply and i think one of the tasks that we have as a christian community is to remind ourselves of this to remind those who are suffering of their value and to live that out as communities that display servant-hearted love people in our communities should be continually reminded just how, how much they matter, just how deeply valuable they are. And I think that kind of, of memory of the depth of human value uh, becomes powerful witness to the world of the beauty and power of the gospel to change people's lives. Yeah. And that is a truth. The fact that like, it's not something that you're, it's a wishful thinking that like, oh, if you believe in the gospel, you have, you now have value. No, we actually believe this is a reality written into the fabric of our of our world, into the fabric of creation, the fabric of the human story. And that's what's being taken away. 
And like that's where, you know, we've exchanged that for a fraudulent story. And I think that returning back to the story, I mean, you talk about like even, you know, 2020 and the implications teasing that out of mental health and all those issues with people. It's a lot of it. We're discussing their intrinsic value. It's hard to be isolated. But but even when you're thinking about these things, like you have value, you matter. You are made in the image of God. And that's something I, I agree with you. We've all wish that were true. And it's sad when people actually can't accept that as true because they don't know God. And everything that they are hearing is being said the other way. You know, as you as you operate as a physician in this area, what's the most frustrating thing? I would say the the thing that frustrates me the most is the way in which many of my colleagues don't see how a willingness to cause people's death devalues them. You know, some of the stories that have been in the media recently about people with, you know, extreme chemical sensitivities, unable to find new places to live, and therefore finding that they can't go on with life, and then finding a doctor who's willing to cause their death. It frustrates me that those physicians or nurse practitioners, or whoever's offering it to them, don't see that they're sort of acknowledging the pointlessness of that person's existence and just how much it devalues them. So instead of our profession turning around saying, no, these people really matter and we need to find a way to help them, rather the response is, uh, yeah, you're right. There's no point in going on and we're happy to end your existence. Like that's a tragedy. I think it's really going to undermine and erode public trust and respect for the profession over time. And I think that's bad for patients more generally. So that's, that's a kind of a more abstract or general frustration. And I would say that's the biggest thing that frustrates me. You know, when people are thinking about uh, end-of-life decision-making, these are truly weighty, weighty issues. And, you know, we need to be so gentle and so uh, patient and respectful of, um, of how people are going through these things. It is tremendously difficult to endure chronic suffering. And I would never want to play that down at all by opposing euthanasia. I want to honor the courage of those who are enduring chronic suffering. But I think in that moment, what we want to be, we want to be people who are there to say, you matter so much that, that I'm, I'm willing to go through this journey of suffering with you. I want to, I'm willing to come alongside, endure these difficulties. And, and I think uh, for many people, uh, just knowing that people will be there with them, that they won't be alone, that they'll be loved and valued and treasured, that they're not perceived as a burden. Uh, to be reminded of of those truths uh, will make all the difference in their decision-making about whether or not to, to seek euthanasia. I've heard it said as well that most people, when you're in a lot of pain, when you're in chronic, chronic pain, you want it to end. And a lot of times the instincts take over. You just want to be taken out of that pain. And, and I think that drives a lot of decision. My understanding is that for, for the majority of people, if you can manage that pain, like you do in end of life care, if you know, if you can give them enough, I don't know, morphine or hydromorphone, whatever, to, to dull their pain, most of the time, they're actually, you know, that they're okay with that, right? And it's, they, they would rather, you know, see the end of their life naturally. Um, and I just, it just feels like this is just a cheap, a cheap way out. To just be like, well, just just end it quickly and you know more efficiently, and and then to spin it and say, then you're not a burden to your family or to society, 
and we've lost what it means to actually die well and to, you know, as I think about it, it reminds me of when Paul's talking in Colossians about filling up in the afflictions lacking in Christ. And you tease that out and it's not that Christ's afflictions are lacking, but it's that Christ came, suffered, rose again, returned to heaven. And now we're here to carry on the gospel. And one of the ways that the gospel is actually proclaimed most mightily is through our suffering. That people see how we suffer different and they, they actually can take note of that. Look how that person's suffering and unwaveringly their faith has not changed. They're still hopeful, right? What is it that they believe that they live like that? Th- that is something that's so powerful. And, and I think that's being robbed, taken away, uh, and, it, and it's painful to see. Yeah, these are these are great points. I mean, I would say I would say two things. I would say first of all, you're absolutely right that palliative care and and modern palliative medicine is incredibly effective at controlling symptoms and relieving pain, relieving discomfort, and helping people to live well through the dying process. And I I, I have colleagues who are immensely skilled at helping people through that in the ICU. We see some of the more extreme uh, cases of, of uh, physical suffering at the end of life, and we absolutely can control it. And I've, I personally sometimes sedated people if needed in order to make sure they're comfortable as they go through the dying process. We have the, we have the tools at our disposal to relieve the vast majority of, of physical suffering. But it's interesting, if you read the literature, the reason people are seeking euthanasia is not physical suffering. Um, that's very rarely the reason people seek it out. It's because of a sense of a loss of autonomy, um, a feeling that there's no point in going on with life because you're progressively becoming more limited, losing control. And and actually what's powerful and attractive to people about euthanasia is the ability to regain some control over the end of life. So it, it's very much actually an intervention for spiritual or existential suffering rather than for physical suffering, despite how it's sometimes advertised. So this is why we're seeing people with mental illness and disability uh, being offered euthanasia, because it's really not about controlling physical symptoms. It's about the challenge to make meaning out of life when you're suffering. And if life feels utterly meaningless, then that's a form of existential suffering that medicine can't fix, can't address. So the second point I would make, and to your point about filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. I think this is uh, part of the message that as Christians, we need to remind one another of, and then we need to speak to the world, is that life is profoundly meaningful, and we have purpose and significance unconditionally, no matter what circumstances or difficulties we find ourselves in, that our life matters, that our existence matters, and that there's a reason that we're here, and there's a reason we're going through things. Um, there's a wonderful book by Viktor Frankl. He was a, a Jewish psychiatrist who survived Auschwitz. And I remember a quote from that book. He quotes Friedrich Nietzsche, actually. And Nietzsche was saying this ironically, but but Frankl was affirming it as true that, it, that he who has a, a why to live can bear almost any how. And I think this is the challenge that our society is facing, uh, that we're seeing with made is actually, what is our why to live? And if we lose that, then it becomes much harder to bear the suffering that might come our way. Hmm. You mentioned two things there. One, I was not aware that uh, this could be offered to someone who had declining mental health. That's crazy to me that that would... Well, that's, I should clarify that that's the legislative change. 
that's being actively discussed at the moment. Oh, wow. And um, I think there's very strong support uh, from it, from the Trudeau government. So it almost certainly will go through. They have a track record of uh, continually easing restrictions and barriers to accessing euthanasia. So I think they'll probably continue on in that vein with this new legislation. Um, you and we're coming in for, you know, a landing here for, for this program, but you know, it's been a, obviously like a, a very heavy episode. Can you send us off with like some hope, like the hope of the gospel and how the gospel plays into this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, like I said before, the crux of this whole issue is the question of whether it's possible for our suffering to really matter. And if I would say there's anything significant about the story of Jesus' life, I would say if there's anything important and, and significant about, about the gospel and bringing it to bear on, on uh, this whole question of euthanasia, it's the idea that, that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection shows us that suffering really does matter, that um, God uses suffering uh, to accomplish his ends in, in this broken world. And that's not to say that suffering is somehow intrinsically good that, or that uh, we shouldn't protest or lament pain and, and suffering. Those are, these are real evils. But it's the power of the gospel that 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 God can take what's what's broken and tragic and turn it for for good and and I would encourage uh, those Christians who are listening to reflect on the fact that when God calls you to suffer in life, that it's an opportunity to prove the true depth of your worship and love for Him, because it's easy to worship God when everything's going well and you're getting everything you want in this life, but. Until you're like Job, who can say, you know, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. That's when you're really worshiping. That's when you're given the privilege of really showing the world just how valuable and glorious God is, that he can satisfy you in the midst of that. So I think we have a message and a philosophy uh, of, of life as Christians that absolutely meets the needs of those who are, who are afraid of suffering. And, and, and facing the, the journey towards death. And so I'm, I'm so thankful to have, have that. And, and I'm hopeful that, um, that God will use us to faithfully spread that message of meaning and purpose and value to a culture that's, that's struggling to find its way through these very difficult issues. Amen. Well, Ewan, thank you for your time. Thank you for jumping on this program with us. And, you know, Lord be with you in your continued work. Uh, as a physician, it's tricky times, uh, but I, I believe he's called you to that. And I'm sure you wouldn't be doing it unless you felt a calling to it as well. And so, um, you know, serve the Lord in that and, and uh, looking forward to speaking again. Uh, thank you very much, Daniel. It was a pleasure to chat. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify, or visit us online at indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. We're also on social media, so make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. In Doubt is a ministry that exists to engage young people with biblical truth and provide answers for many of today's questions of life, faith, and culture. 
Through audio programs, articles, and blogs, InDoubt reaches out to encourage, strengthen, and disciple young adults. To check out all the resources of InDoubt, visit indoubt.ca in Canada or indoubt.com in the U.S. Or if you're in a position or share a passion for the ministry of young people, you can support the ongoing mission of engaging a new generation with the truth of the Bible. First, you can pray for this ministry. And second, and if you are able, please consider a financial gift by visiting indoubt.ca in Canada or indoubt.com in the U.S. Your gift of any amount is such a blessing and an answer to prayer. Thanks.